Hello, everyone. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders, where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Ole Kujikov, and our guest today is Hirsch Tapadia, CEO and co-founder of Allstacks, the leading predictive analytics platform for software development. Today, we're talking with Hirsch about delivering actionable insights to software engineering managers. But before we get into that, Hirsch, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, real excited to talk. So why don't you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you started Allstacks? Yeah, I am an engineer by training. I grew up here in Raleigh, North Carolina. My parents came to New York City for grad school, and it's actually a fun little story. My dad saw my mom on TV and then saw her walking through the subway station and was like, I've, I've seen that person. And somehow after that, they met. He hasn't told me the rest of the story yet. But um, eventually, my mom got a job at IBM, moved down to Raleigh, North Carolina. I came along after that. So I've been born and raised here. And I got to do something really fun growing up. And that's I got to experience my dad quitting his job when I was five years old and starting from scratch and going through like a handful of different businesses and the impacts on our, on our life. And I got to internalize a lot of that. So I kind of, I kind of always had this notion that, you know, I, I wanted to be in a business of some sort. I didn't really understand what that was, but that's what I wanted to do. And I got really fortunate at NC State that I had a professor there who took an interest in me and introduced me to the entrepreneurship programs there. And out of that, I started my first company with a couple of my classmates, and it was a medical device company. And what we did was we built a piece of hardware and software that would identify if somebody had a tuberculosis infection which is a pretty interesting product to build when you're a 22-year-old electrical engineer. But it's set off kind of a, a, a lifetime. A lifetime maybe is too strong a word. I'm only 33. But it, it, <laughs> it's set off lifetime so far, lifetime to date, a path in entrepreneurship where I kind of committed to several things. I, I committed to changing up what I was doing frequently and really just committed to experiencing customer problems and, and being really customer centric. And so what ended up happening was it was 2009, which is, you know, as, as many people would know, a delightful time to start a company as a 22 year old electrical engineer focused in medical devices targeted at the developing world. And so what we managed to do was kind of get the company acquired. And when we got the company acquired, it was actually the company we got acquired into set a lot of the stage for what I would experience that would eventually feed into Allstacks. And that was that I found myself running product and engineering at this company. And it was a pharmaceutical supply chain security company. So what we were doing was we were identifying whether a drug was a real drug or a fake drug. 
And if it was a real drug, was it in the geography it was supposed to be? So was this drug destined for country A and actually ended up in country B due to trade fraud and, and whatever? And in that scenario, the people I was working with, my, my colleagues, my stakeholders, weren't really developers. They weren't really product software SaaS people, right? And so I was the guy explaining to all these folks why software is developed the way it is, why it's not like the thing that they understand. You know, why isn't a this algorithm we're developing developed like this molecule that you're used to developing? And how does that change? And what happens when we miss a delivery date? What happens when you change scope? What happens when you show up and say, we're taking the company in a whole different direction? <laughs> and and why can't I still hit all my deadlines? You, you certainly haven't changed the foundation underneath me. And I had to do that without any data, right? It was all very qualitative. And so that, that experience stayed with me. Uh, I spent about six and a half years there. And at the same time, I had developed a really close working relationship with Jeremy Freeman, who's my CTO and co-founder at Allstacks, who was the first employee at both the first company, which was called MedCount, and the second company, which was called Sirdirect. And we decided we wanted to do something else. And so we ended up leaving and kind of poking around, trying out different ideas, doing some consulting work. And we realized that the problems that we were seeing the most frequently were ultimately problems of alignment, problems of communication. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that you have a lot of different people working together. And these people that are working together are relying on each other to essentially just do what they said they were going to do when they said they were going to do it. And if that thing was going to change to let them know early so that they could adjust their plans. And that fundamentally wasn't happening in the product engineering versus rest of the business uh, arrangement. And it wasn't happening because it was really hard. You know, you have all this data and all these things flying around and Jira tickets and GitHub commits and, with these developers and the salespeople are running in and saying, oh, I just signed this contract. All you have to do is build five more features and that gets jammed into the roadmap. And then all of, you know, and all of a sudden we're building. This is all speaking very directly to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> right. But keep going. Yeah, keep going, keep going. Yeah, so now, and then they're like, okay, well, uh, I know how to solve this. We'll just be agile, right? And then uh, <laughs> now you're agile, you're doing sprints. And, and then what does that tell you? Like, well, now we think in two weeks instead of one week. And did we get anything done? I'm not sure. We took this many points, but is that many points the right number of points? Are they on the right thing? I don't know. We're making progress, but is that progress taking us anywhere? So it sounds, yeah, sorry to cut you off. It, it, it sounds like th it's clear that there's problems and, you know, a lot of organizations try to throw scrum at the problem and they sort of half do it and, you know, the, the, the problems still exist. And I think the, the problem is that there's so many moving parts. And I like how you mentioned, like, there's, there's plans and plans change, but is everybody updated once the plans change? How do we take a qualitative, sorry, how do we take a quantitative approach to this problem? So 
you know, again, sorry for cutting you off, but, but yeah, keep, keep telling me what your idea was at that point. Yeah. So what happened was that all this time that Jeremy and I had been working together, the things that we had been working on technologically were basically machine learning tools, data analytics, a lot of statistics and API integrations. And we had this idea that, you know, we spent the last 10 years or so building out dev tools for all the little parts and pieces of the software development lifecycle. And these tools don't communicate with each other really well. I mean, as much as I love the Atlassian crew, like even if you have all Atlassian products, you still struggle to map everything right across all these different tools. And we said, well, now with all the APIs, I think we can actually just grab all this data. And then once we have all this data, we can start looking for patterns. And if we look for those patterns, we can probably start predicting what's going to happen in the future based on what's happened in the past. Because as much as you look at any kind of anecdotal set of events in software development, if you zoom out, you can pretty quickly understand what the, the problems are on a macro level. And then you can use those to kind of sense, well, where do I need to adjust things so that nobody gets surprised when the ultimate events happen. And when you say problems, you're talking about problems in the actual development process, not like the problems we encounter you know, in a JIRA ticket. Right. So think about it like this. I, I'll zoom back out to my healthcare background. And this is a great year for it because of, because of COVID. <laughs> if you were an epidemiologist and you said, what is my goal as an epidemiologist, let's say related to COVID? The goal is, you know, maybe I want in my county, I want to overall reduce the rate of the incidence of COVID. But that doesn't mean that I'm out there trying to stamp out every single acute instance of COVID. I'm trying to establish policies and processes and activities that net benefit the aggregate. It's because I'm a level up, right, as an epidemiologist. It's the people on the ground, the physicians, the nurses, the, the healthcare workers, the pharmacists, that are taking care of people one-on-one. -on -one. And so they need different information than what the epidemiologist needs to like institute the policies, the processes that overall net benefit. So what we're trying to do with Allstacks is we're trying to give each of those personas the actions that they can take, the information that they need so that they can work on their level and then work with their stakeholders. So if you're a, a VP of engineering, you're trying to get information so that you can make both your team that you, you manage successful, but also your counterpart successful. And then if you're a, a product manager or an engineering manager, you're trying to work on your team, helping them kind of manage their risks day to day. And if you're a customer success leader, you're trying to understand my customers need things. 
my product people are trying to build things. My engineering leaders are trying to respond to what I'm asking them to do. And where does everything stand? How can I, how can I respond? So what we're trying to do with all stacks is create that kind of that baseline set of information for the entire organization where they can all create their optimization to move forward together. So essentially it's like stepping back from these problems um, that we deal with on a regular basis. And instead of trying to directly solve them, you're trying to maybe create transparency and processes that are transparent so that the people on the ground level that actually solve these problems, they can do their job and that everyone can communicate um, you know, what they're doing. Right. Imagine this. There's two scenarios. One is, um, so, so we have a critical initiative, right? And that critical initiative, we want it to be out the door before Thanksgiving. Why do we want it to be out the door before Thanksgiving? You know, some reason, right? There's some product requirement, there's some customer requirement, or we've just set an internal deadline on ourselves. It doesn't really matter, but we have a goal. And there's one world where, because we're so caught up in the weeds, it's really hard to pull our head out and identify that, hey, we're actually multiple weeks late on this thing. And when do we find out? We find out the week before Thanksgiving that we're not going to deliver. And now our whole team is working through Thanksgiving to get this thing out the door. It's a disaster. The other world is we, we have this information, this data from all these tools, and we mapped these patterns about how people are working, where they're getting stuck, how we're changing scope. What are anomalous risks we've discovered? Like the requirements are ambiguous over here. The pull requests are taking longer to review than is normal. People are dividing their time between this initiative and another pet project that showed up. And between all of that, we found out three weeks early that we're not going to deliver on time. Well, what do you gain from finding out three weeks early? Well, what you gain is the opportunity for the stakeholders, maybe it's product and sales in this case, to sit down together and say, what's more important? Is it more important that we hit the date or is it more important that we deliver the full scope? And then they say, oh, you know, for this customer, we really need to hit the date. I think we can negotiate on scope. Great. Let's, let's play with the scope and see what will get us back on track. And, oh, this person is splitting their time between your pet project and this project. Can we just, for the next three weeks, have them focus? And you, you make those changes, and then you find out, oh, the forecast now is on track. And so what did we enable for that team? We enabled critical transparency, critical alignment, and this collaboration to move forward rather than an argument about whether there was a problem and who had the problem and why was there a problem, right? We know there's a problem. Let's, let's figure out a solution. And so that's, that's what we're enabling. That's what we're, that's the world we're building with all stacks. Yeah. And I think we can all agree that that first world is the one we typically live in. And that second one is the one we'd like to get to. 
Um, the value proposition is very clear. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. My first question would be like this learning, how, how long does that take? How do you gather that data? How, how, how quick is the, is the installment time, I, I guess, would be the real question. Yeah, yeah. So for most customers, when we, so we make API level connections to the tools, right? So API token, OAuth token, something like that. Mm-hmm. And that takes a few minutes, five, 10 minutes. Then we process all the history over the next day or so. And so the models actually train themselves by using the customer's his- history and using that basically figure out two high level concepts. What is your happy, successful path? These are all the ways you've been successful in the past. And what is the, the typical way you're successful? And then we look at all the branching paths away from that happy path that introduced risk and you know created the unhappiness, we could say. Um, and what were the ways that manifested? And what impact did they have? So then at the end of that day or two of processing time, we now have an up-to-date model backed by all of the historical performance that you can go and look at the metrics and reporting on that says something like, when a pull request takes more than one standard deviation to review, then this amount of time for your team, let's say on your team it's eight hours, and this pull request took 16 hours, so more than one standard deviation away. That story is now going to take two days longer to get across the line. And then we take all those individual instances and we aggregate them together with other factors. And then we give you a high level forecast. This is when this epic is gonna be delivered. This is when this release is gonna come out. And then backing it up is about a hundred different metrics that you get access to that give you the color and nuance around that forecast. Well, that all sounds amazing. You know, for the listeners that might be interested in, you know, purchasing a solution like this, uh, myself included, can you shed some light on like where you're getting that data? It sounds like GitHub is definitely mm-hmm. a part of it. Um, maybe some of the Atlassian products you mentioned, what what essentially do you need to, to connect with? Yeah. So, the base, the base information comes from basically your project management tool and your source code tool. Okay. So if you have a Jira and a GitHub or a, a Jira and a GitLab or Bitbucket or something like that, that'll work great. Um, we also support the Microsoft suite. So if you use Azure DevOps or VSTS or TFS or something like that, we can pull that in. You can be on-premise or you can be your tools can be on-premise or cloud. We're a SOC 2 type 2 compliant software, which is super important for all of our enterprise folks. So we we typically can connect our systems into whatever systems folks use. And I think another really important thing to call out from a security perspective is we actually don't store any raw source code data. We don't keep that in our systems. So it's uh, trying to reduce our hackability footprint, or if we can. <laughs> <laughs> it 
seems like a good idea. <laughs> All right. Well, that sounds awesome. Um, I think I'll be giving you a call after this podcast because <laughs> it sounds like a solution like this is would be great. So, you know, you believe in this. It sounds awesome. Can you tell us about the market next? Why do you think your company is, is going to be big? Yeah. So what's really cool about the market is that, uh, I mean, we can back up and just start with the, with the, the overarching sentiment, right? So we've all heard the phrase software is eating the world, right? And what is, what does that mean? I mean, it literally means every company is a software company. So we have worked with and work with everything from like auto parts, folks to financial services to farming and ag tech companies uh, to, to your pure tech you know SaaS companies and so what we find is that people are so invested in this digital transformation because it's fundamentally changing how people do business it's making their organizations more successful more efficient more capable and it's also increasing the footprint, the address, addressable footprint of their organization. So our enterprise customers and, and a lot of our you know, mid-market customers, it's very rare that one of them is totally centralized in one location. And you know, right now in, in COVID era, that's even even bigger, right? So how do we, how do we facilitate communication across all these geographies and time zones and ensure alignment and ensure that we're all moving forward. It's by addressing not just our little community of developers and the tech hubs in you know, San Francisco, New York and Austin and, and even places like Raleigh. It's that these, these same problems manifest over the entire world. So, how does that come out in numbers? Well, there's 28 million software developers in the world. When we started the company, there were 24 million. So we've added 4 million in three years and, and it's ever growing. And most of these developers work in large companies that are working on big complicated projects where these problems are exacerbated. So the, the market is massive. We're working with literally anyone that develops code and we can work with pretty much every set of tooling. So that's not really the barrier. What's the barrier? The barrier is, do you care about delivering software? Hmm. If you don't care, <laughs> the, all the data in the world is not going to help you. But if it's important to you that you're working together with your colleagues to move forward, deliver software, build, build the future of your company and show that you're doing it and doing it well, or, or if you're not doing it well, at least have an interest in getting better, then we can help. But every now and then, you know, you can come across a group that's you know, happy with status quo, but we found that overwhelmingly most people want to always be trying to get better. All right, next, let's talk about your uh, your addressable market. How competitive is it? It's very new. So basically everyone that's tackling some version of this problem is 
three, maybe four years old. I was looking at some numbers the other day and it's like less than a quarter percent global penetration. When we go work with customers, what we see is that most folks are doing nothing or they're using homegrown tools of some sort, whether it's a spreadsheet or in an advanced case, like some kind of self-built BI dashboard. But that's that's kind of the state of the art. And it's not for a lack of interest. It's, it's more of a unknown unknown problem or a, a level of complexity. What should I measure? Why should I measure it? And if I'm measuring it, what do I do with it? So it's, it's a problem of um, not knowing where to start. Definitely. I think we can all agree that it's like a super complex problem. You know, this is like a, a process problem and the, the process is, is writing code, which is imaginary. So it, it's like, how do you measure something that's where your output is intellectual property? It's, it's ideas, it's instructions. And so it sounds like it's new. It sounds like your approach is to cast a wide net. Can you describe the essence of your innovation or what you think differentiates you from your competition? Yeah, I think for us, what's interesting about, about our landscape is everyone has a little bit of a different philosophy. Our philosophy is really focused on outcomes and alignment. So we've kind of built our product to help help our customers really understand what is going to happen, right? So based on where you are right now, where are you most likely to land? And then leverage that information in like very shareable ways with their colleagues so that they can all make decisions together. So if this is where we stand now and this is where we're going, what do we want to do about it? Are we happy with that? Or do we want to make a change to try to create a different outcome? And that's really the key. We want our customers to be creating their outcomes. We don't want them to be reacting to the outcomes. And so we've centered everything around forecasting and outcome development and anomaly detection that that threatens these outcomes and quantify those anomalies with both when these anomalies happen here are their impacts. Here are their their granular impacts on the outcomes. Well, it sounds like your approach is right, and you have a good understanding of the market and the need. Next, I'd like you to speak to why the timing is right. You know, uh, software companies aren't new. These challenges uh, likewise aren't new. And a lot of the times, timing is key for the success of a you know startup company. So why do you think now is the right time for your company? Yeah, there are, what I've observed is there are a number of factors that have kind of come together to make this, to make right now the right time. So one is we've instrumented a lot of our companies, right? There's, there are KPIs and metrics that come from sales and marketing and even customer success. And so our businesses can be extremely metrics driven. And I think it, it kind of stems from the evolution of the OKR culture that, that has really kind of taken over, right? And so now if you have a lot of your business, a lot of it that was previously considered 
maybe a little softer, is now highly quantified. And then you get into a board meeting and you say, okay, well, like here's our numbers from the sales team, here's our ROI from the marketing team, and then the engineering team is, is well, they feel really good. And that's about the best we get, right? And that's not satisfying for the leadership team, the board, but it's also not satisfying for the engineering organization because they know they, they have a quantitative org. They're just not able to create that quantitative presentation of their outcomes because the data is really challenging. There's a lot of you know, other factors, things like that, things that, that we're helping solve with all stats. So there's a demand from the top that says we have to see the data. The other thing that's interesting is that we actually can get the data now. We didn't, we didn't used to be able to, it was very challenging, right? You'd, you'd have to, you know, install agents on people's machines, which was really intrusive and, and kind of gross and collect their data or people are recording keystrokes and like, you know, all sorts of stuff. We're counting, or we can only count really low level granular things that are easier to capture, like lines of code and, and things like that, that don't really tell the right story. And so culturally, there wasn't a way to capture this data that wasn't very toxic. And we've, we've crossed that bridge. Now with the, every application mostly running API first, having a single page framework, you, you have a place to query that says, because we've built all these API first applications, now those APIs are getting exposed. And because of you know, decades of work and building out cloud environments, we have highly efficient ways to capture that data, process that data, and then present it back. So in a way, it's like, it's like a, a microcosm of the larger macro changes in technology. They all kind of come together, they've coalesced here to say now that all of this, these other trends have happened, we can actually build this application. We can actually collect this data and start delivering this information. That's really interesting. I'd actually like to dig a little bit deeper on the API point you mentioned. You know, one of the premier challenges in data science is data collection, because anytime you do data collection, there's inherent biases in how you right. did the data collection. So why do you think APIs and the, the push towards that or the shift in the software industry towards exposed APIs uh, is different? Yeah, it's a great point, right? Observing the data, collecting the data can change the data. So how do we avoid that? Well, can we collect the data silently in ways that don't require changes in behavior? So that's that's a real key. We've, we've designed our product such that the people that are doing the work, the developers, the project managers, the scrum masters, the QA folks, they actually don't change their behavior at all, right? Work the way you work. Don't tag anything. Don't indicate anything. Just do what you do in the way that's the most comfortable. And we'll pull the outputs from that to collect this data and generate these insights. And that's really important for two ways. One is all those old ways of collecting data that were like monitoring people, um, it was highly intrusive. It was like you're monitoring someone's thoughts, right? If you think about when you're 
say you're writing an email and you're typing that email out, you don't want someone to watch you construct that email. It's very uncomfortable. And it's uncomfortable because it's a manifestation of your thoughts. You're going to write a sentence, delete the sentence, reword the sentence, and then ultimately you send a complete thought to the recipient. The recipient only observes that complete thought. They don't observe your process to arrive at that thought. So coding is the same way, right? If I'm watching you write code, it's highly uncomfortable, very intrusive, because you're you're processing things live. But if I look at your pull request, that's something that you have presented for review. And that's a whole different experience. Psychologically, it's a much, much healthier way to interact with this data. And because it doesn't require behavior change, there's less bias that's being introduced into the data. And then finally, the really important thing is, because it's not that computationally complex to get multiple cuts at the data hmm. as it used to be, you can design analytics that they don't exist in a silo, they don't exist in a vacuum, they actually work in concert with one another, such that what happens is you it's, it's harder to gain. Basically, if you have a single metric, right, lines of code, commits, whatever, velocity, you're going to game that metric to try to improve that metric. That's like mm. you know, fundamental truth. Mm-hmm. But if I, have, if I have a set of metrics that when I find the local optimization of that set of metrics, that's actually going to create the optimal behavior for this team. Now, gaming it is actually the success in and of itself. I've committed code as a reasonable clip. My PRs aren't taking too long to review and they're getting merged because they're well constructed. That means my velocity is very steady hmm. and I don't churn a lot of code because I'm, I'm being thoughtful about putting it out. My tests are passing and we're regularly deploying things to production. Hmm. It's like, oh, if I optimized all of those things, I mean, that, that's, that's wonderful. That's the dream. That's the dream, right? That's that's what we want. And and so that can only happen when it's actually attainable to measure all that stuff without putting this like heavy burden on the on the developers or on the on the machines or the algorithms or the or the org itself. And so I think all of that had to come together to make this timing really work. Yeah, all this sounds great. And as someone who kind of works in product myself, everything you're talking about is like what I'm trying to achieve here. This this optimization problem is one I'm very familiar with. So we've kind of talked about the company. Next, I'd like you to tell me about the results to this point. So, so next, uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about some of the key milestones that you've achieved along your journey and where you stand today uh, with Allstacks? Yeah, so let's see. It, it wasn't that long ago. It, it was you know two and a half years ago or so that it was just me and Jeremy. Right? We were we had this idea. We were down in TechStars down in Texas. We we're building it out, and uh, we hired our first employee, Adam, who came on and helped us run growth and raised our our first round of funding into the company in 2018. And, 
and what we did since then has been really incredible. We we have built out our team. We got our first customers. We spent a lot of time thinking about what's a vitamin, what's a painkiller, mm. and that that grew us out to our forecasting and outcomes driven value propositions. And when we got to that, we saw you know our our pipeline scale went crazy, and so in order to service that. In 2019, we went out, we raised a, a seed round with with a great fund out of Boston called Hyperplane. You know, if, you, if you're a data-focused a data focused company looking to raise a seed round, uh, there's, there's very few funds that are better than Hyperplane. The, the team is incredible. And they, they have their own personal growth to show as a result of it. And the, so highly recommend them. And when we raised that round, what that allowed us to do is scale up the team to service the pipeline. And we really started pushing the product in 2020. And so far we've grown almost 11 X in 2020. Wow. And probably end the year around 14 times what we started the year with. And we'll, We'll, get, we'll just keep scaling this thing because what we're trying to do is service all these folks around the world that are just you know, trying to build software better and, and work together with their colleagues in ways that you know they haven't been able to create that kind of broad alignment, broad trust across their organization. You know, I think about it a lot. What what is what does it look like if you if you plotted all the different departments of a company it's like you know you have all the parts of the company that are like the un negotiating for for their um for their outcomes but then product and engineering is like the moon and every now and then we look at it and we're like oh yeah let's go there for a minute and it takes you know it takes a whole lot of resources a whole lot of work but it's never really like a fully integrated fully present part of the organization and that's a real shame right especially if you're trying to be like a product led company yeah. and as a product person myself like what i what i want to see is a vision of the future where product and engineering are this fully integrated part of the business where the whole company is able to move in lockstep together because they all know where they stand. They all know what's coming. You know, it's like, uh, I was using this analogy the other day, but in The Wizard of Oz, when you have all the characters and a linked arm skipping down the yellow brick road, moving together, and they know where they're going, and they're, they're, they're doing it together, and they're happy to be there. That's, that's what I want our customers to be like. I'm not sure which one is product and which one is engineering, but maybe it's the Tin Man and Scarecrow. <laughs> probably i'd say the tin man uh yeah not to say all engineers are heartless but oftentimes they kind of look at these problems very calculating <laughs> all right so what indicates to you that your team is excellent for this job of empowering software engineering managers with business intelligence insights so at all levels our team has either lived this problem or they're experienced it in some way, they're product-minded, and they're customer-centric, every single person on the team. What, what's really amazing about my team is I can take anybody on the team and put them in front of the customer, and they're going to 
they're going to increase the value the customer got in that conversation. And I, I can pretty much guarantee that's going to happen. The empathy for the customer experience that we have is amazing. And I'm just really fortunate that we've been able to put together this set of people that are so attuned to making our customers succeed. Like we succeed when our customers succeed Mm -hmm. and everyone in the company lives that experience. And that's what makes us really successful. Uh, Next question is going to be how, how do you reach those customers? You know, how are you reaching out to customers to deliver your value proposition? Yeah, we, we do it in a bunch of different ways. You know, we, we call them. Sometimes they call us, uh, our customers refer us out to several others which has been really great. Um, we, we run, you know, content series, webinars that, that bring folks in Mm -hmm. and across all of these, I think one thing that's, that's really constant is that when we, when we meet someone and we talk to them about the, about the challenges they're facing or the things they want to get better at, what we're able to do is we're able to show them very quickly because of the way we've set the product up, what that looks like with their own data. Mm. And so they can experience the product and how it could help them very readily from the point where we first make contact with them. Mm. And then how fast after that do they ask to sign up? <laughs> you know, it's rarely, it's, it's rarely a slowdown from the perspective of the person that's using the product. Yeah. yeah. There's always a lawyer that will work me out, <laughs> but it's never, it's, it's never the person themselves. It's never an easy thing getting these deals done when, when you're dealing with kind of uh, B2B, right? Yeah, there's, it's, it's complicated and it's sensitive stuff, but we've always been able to find value for the folks we work with. And I mean, 11 times growth in, hey, 11 months, that's, that's pretty huge. So it sounds like you're able to reach your customers pretty well, and uh, they might even be putting in a good word for you. Yeah, yeah, we got a uh, we got the number one uh, the number one in our category on G two Crowd last quarter. And Congrats! One of the thank you. One of the things <laughs> that our customers called out was was the support and success that they received from us. So they love the product, but. We're there in service of them. Yeah. All right. Well, that's surely a good indicator. Next, let's talk about revenue streams. You know, these kind of software businesses. It's always interesting to to hear how people are, you know, trying to monetize their value. Um, So, how do you make money? Uh, Yeah. Let's start with that. How do you make money? Yeah. So, we're you know we're a SaaS business. We price based on the size of the organization, and Mm -hmm. so where we look at it as like it's the the integrated value we're delivering to the organization as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's kind of the the unit is the number of contributors inside of your your development org and in in tiers. And like contributors is that developers or would that include, you know, people on the product side, scrum masters, product owners, people like that. You know, it it depends on the nature of the company and how it's structured. So Mm -hmm. predominantly it's developers, but depending on 
how it's structured. You you might include the QA folks, you might include project managers or scrum masters or product people as well. Mm-hmm. But we just it's a conversation we have with the customer. And then who makes the purchasing decision ultimately? Usually there's a couple ways to think about this. So usually in the, in the overwhelming number of companies that we have, it's a VP of engineering that makes the purchasing decision. But there's actually like a meta characteristic there that's really important. So who was the person who had to deliver the bad news when something went sideways? That person who has that lived pain is the champion, the the ultimately the buyer. Um, before we get out of here, do you have any final thoughts just after doing all this? Where's your head at? Well, this was really fun. I appreciate you having me on here and I'm excited to see how we might help you out. I think, you know, what's what's interesting about these these kind of podcasts and stuff is that we think a lot about kind of highlights, right? What's gone well for everybody. And, you know, I just want to call out that, like, we're in this really unique time and this world we live in is super stressful mm-hmm. and it's not all highlights for everyone, right? One of the one of the things we think about a lot in terms of early stage startups and around our team is that, you know, there's no good days and there's no bad days, right? All days are a blend of good and bad mm-hmm. and that's okay. And so... You know, as we're going through this, we see it in our, our customers, we see it in our own company, we see it in our families. Uh, being a CEO can be a really lonely job. So, you know, if, just like a general thing, if I can help someone who, you know, needs someone to talk to, I'd, I'd love to do that. And, you know, shoot me a note. It's hirsch at allstacks.com and maybe I can help or maybe I know someone that can help. Well, that's a good as a, a good a message as any to end the end the podcast on. Thanks for joining. It, you were very thoughtful, and I'm just excited to see where your product goes in the next uh, in the next year here, or, or give or take. So, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. We're gonna end it there. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating. Hirsch, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Oh.